God has things figured out. Uh, I was putting the finishing touches on this sermon actually on Monday, and I did not at that time understand exactly how well God had things figured out. But God has things figured out. We're going to actually skip our memory verse this week. We'll get back to that next week. But I want to start by telling you about a scene from one of my favorite TV shows. So the Warriors have just won an incredible victory. But in order to win the victory, they had to sacrifice everything. And they are facing their inevitable demise. Two warriors together, a master and apprentice, facing their demise. The master says, we die well. The apprentice responds, more than dying well, old man, we die free. And then, all of a sudden, miraculously, it winds up they end up living. And this TV series goes on because, you know, you wouldn't want to end a TV series like that. But the idea there, we die well. Within us, as humans, there's a desire for life to be meaningful. And in our desire for life to be meaningful, we often also look at our death to be meaningful. But the reality is that death is actually about as unnatural as it can get. We weren't meant to die. We were not created to die. In fact, the ultimate irony is that the only person who was made to die is the only person who didn't deserve to die. The only one who was born to die is the one who never deserved to die in the first place. And that's the ultimate irony. And as we go forward into Christmas, I want us to dwell in that uncomfortable irony that Jesus was born to die. What we must understand is that the cross was always before Jesus. The cross was always coming. So to do this, we're going to look at the realities of who Jesus is. We're going to see that Jesus changes everything. But to truly know Jesus, we must embrace both the joy and the sorrow of the condition that we find ourselves in. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're not going to read the traditional Christmas story today. Normally, when we read the Christmas story, we read Luke chapter 2, and we start with verse 1, and we read up through verse 20. And today, we're going to start at verse 22. 21 is a good verse, too. But what I want us to see, what I want us to focus on today is that Jesus came to die. Came to die for our sins. That that was his purpose all along. So read with me Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. It says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, 
Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. I think often when we talk about Christmas, or when we talk about Christ, we talk about the Christmas story, we get to verse 20 of Luke 2, and then we jump ahead, and we get to Luke chapter 3, where we have John the Baptist, because that's where all the interesting stuff starts to happen. But we skip this middle section that has so much rich information. You see, what we learn, first of all, before we even get to some of the main points, we learn that Jesus really was fully human. Yes, he was God incarnate, but he was human, and he was subject to the rules and the customs and the ways of doing human things. According to Leviticus chapter 12, when a baby was born, a male baby was born, they were required to be presented at the temple in order to be circumcised. At that same time, mom and dad had to offer sacrifices. Mary and Joseph treat Jesus no differently. They take him to the temple in order to do this very human thing. See, the God of the universe condescended. He became fully human. And that's the first reminder we have. But then we dig into the text deeper. And what I want you to see in verses 25 through 32 is that knowing Jesus changes everything. We're going to look at Simeon. 
We're going to look at Simeon's response to Jesus to see that knowing Jesus changes everything. The language that Luke uses is important. We learn that Simeon was waiting. Simeon was waiting. He was a man. He was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. And he was waiting. Waiting for what? Our NIV says the consolation of Israel. The word here is parakalesin, which means enduring comfort, really inexhaustible comfort. The book of Isaiah told us, told them, told Simeon, that there would come a time when God would comfort his people. See, the people of Israel might as well have been slaves in Rome. Life was hard. They were subject to Roman taxes. They were subject to Roman government. They were subject to Roman overstep. They were in need of comfort. They were waiting, desperately waiting for a hero to save them. And Simeon is waiting. Waiting for what? Messiah. Who is Messiah? There are actually historically, at this time in history, really six or more different views on who Messiah would be. And historians have really covered a lot of the gamut on different groups of people had different views of who the Messiah was going to be. Some people were expecting a Messiah who would come as a king. Some people thought, We've lost it. God's not actually going to send the Messiah. We've messed up too big. Others thought that Messiah would be a priest and king together. Some people held that Messiah would be a mighty warrior. For others, like the Samaritans, the Messiah would be a prophet greater than Moses. Some thought the Messiah would be a great teacher. There's some irony. If you look at all the different views of Messiah, Jesus somehow amazingly matches actually all of them. But they were waiting for a hero. The thing that all six strands of messianic expectations have in common is that the people needed help. They recognize this, and Simeon is waiting. We today need to recognize that Jesus is the most significant figure in all of history. He is the one on whom all of history waits for. Look at modern music. Modern music really has two themes. We need someone to come save us or I'm going to save us because I'm all there is. I mean, that's essentially the two themes of most modern music today. We are waiting in anticipation for someone. And the fact is that he's already come. He is the Messiah, the Christ. So what does that mean for us? If Jesus is the most significant figure in all of history, and I feel like in a church like Southview, I'm pretty safe in saying that. People aren't going to disagree with me on that one. But what does that really mean for us? 
It means that knowing Jesus is enough for complete life. And that's really what Simeon teaches us. Knowing Jesus was enough for Simeon. Simeon, on taking Jesus in his arms, declares that his life is complete. God, you promised me that I would see your Messiah, that I would see the hero to save us, and here he is. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. But more than just the fact that knowing Jesus is enough for a complete life, we have this really important fact that it is possible for anybody to come to know Jesus. Simeon says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. We must recognize that knowing Jesus changes everything. Why? Because he's the most significant figure in all of history. He's all you need for a complete life. And it is possible for anybody to come to know Jesus. If the only person that Superman ever saved was Lois Lane, we wouldn't call him Superman. The story, I mean, he saves Lois Lane a lot. There's a lot to that. But the story would not be something worth telling. The story worth telling is the story of one who is available to anybody. And that's the story of Jesus. The question that we must ask ourselves, that Simeon, I think, really forces upon us, this man who is waiting, eagerly waiting for that consolation, that hero, the question that we have to ask ourselves in light of that is, have I met Jesus? Simeon, upon seeing Jesus, upon holding Jesus, admits, I'm ready. My life is now complete. Jesus completes our life. The question that you need to ask yourself is, have I met Jesus? Do I know this one who completes my life? This one who gives me strength in my weakness? Do I know him? But the story goes on. Simeon is not done speaking yet. In the next passage, 33 through 35, what we see is that truly knowing Jesus will demand both joy and sorrow. Look at how Mary and Joseph respond. Mary and Joseph, on hearing what Simeon said, so I read that, verses 29 through 32, marvel. Mary and Joseph marvel. Why? Well, I already told you Jesus is the most significant figure in history. And Simeon has essentially said that. I've been waiting for the consolation, the Messiah, God's solution to our problem, and now I've seen him. And how do Mary and Joseph respond? They marvel. Now, I want you to understand something. If anybody understood who Jesus was, it would have been Mary. 
right? An angel has visited her. She has born a child without doing any of the prerequisite work. If anybody knew that Jesus was special, it should have been Mary. But I think here in this moment, Mary comes to understand something so much more. That this baby that she has born is the most significant figure in history, is the one on whom all of history pivots, is the Messiah that they had hoped for. Here at the temple, it strikes them, and they marvel. So a question for you. We're racing towards Christmas, right? Just a matter of weeks. Have you taken time yet to marvel at Jesus? There's lights out there. Emily and I love going and looking at Christmas lights. There's decorations in people's yards. The stores are packed. Gifts under the tree. But have you marveled at Jesus? I think sometimes we forget to do that. And I want to remind you, I want to encourage you to take time now to marvel at the Messiah. Remember, he is the most significant person in all of history. But he is more than just a significant figure. Look at the first half of verse 35. It says, so that the hearts of many will be revealed. The hearts of many will be revealed. There's been lots of figures in history. But no figure in history demands that you look at him, evaluate him, and make a choice. It's not a popular word. It's not something people like to hear. But it's the truth regardless. We live in a world that would, if possible, erase that word and say something like, each of us here makes different choices in life. Well, that's nice to say, but it's, it, it's robbing it of the truth. The truth is each of us here makes wrong choices in life and sins. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to say something's wrong. Each of us here makes bad, wrong choices. We each sin. But Jesus promises that those who trust in him are given forgiveness. And in that promise, implicit in that tr- promise is a choice to be made. Will you accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness or will you continue to wallow in your sin? That's the choice that Jesus offers. Do you accept his offer of forgiveness or do you continue to wallow in sin? And in so doing, the thoughts of hearts are revealed. Those who are submissive to God's grace, who accept God's gracious offer of salvation... Unlike anyone else in history, when you encounter Jesus and you fully understand what Jesus says, you are faced with a decision. Do I accept it or do I reject it? Jesus is more than the most influential person in history. He's the person that demands you make a choice. 
But even more than that, look at verse 35b. Simeon says to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So I told you all that you were sinners. It kind of stinks. But the sorrow gets even worse. You see, Jesus is the one who brings us face to face with the consequences of sin. And here, as a newborn baby, Jesus brought us face to face with the consequences of our sin. Simeon alludes to a very important fact. Jesus was born to die. From the very beginning, Simeon addresses this. Mary, this most important figure in history, this Messiah, is going to bring you great sorrow because he is going to die. Why? Because you deserve to die. Why? Because each of us here today deserves to die for our sins. That is the just punishment of a righteous God on unrighteous sinners. In Luke 9.22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. As we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we need to take time and come face to face with the reality that Jesus was born to die because I was born to live. But in my sin, in my sin, I earned death. This Christmas, I want us to celebrate not just because of the joy of Christmas, but I want to take time. I want to encourage you to take time to embrace the sorrow of sin. When we fully embrace the sorrow of our sin and the devastation of our sin, it makes the joy of the Savior all that much greater. How do we do that? By asking God to reveal our sinfulness to us. By asking God to show us areas of our life where we rebel against him. And to forgive us from those sins. I have taken a lot of tests in my life. I I really don't like taking tests. But I've taken a lot of tests in my life. I don't know how you take tests, but... What I often do is I open up the test and I look for all of the easy questions and I get those out of the way. Okay? And then I start working on the hard problems. Here's the thing. If I want to pass the test, I have to eventually get to the hard problems. I can't just dwell on the easy problems. In life, we need to deal with the hard part. The hard part of life is sin. Jesus was born to die for pay for my sin. Don't put off dealing with the sin. So, action step. Ask yourself, have I properly dealt with the hard parts of Jesus? Jesus is more than just a significant figure. He calls on us to deal with sin.
Have you done so? The story continues. After Simeon, the prophetess Anna shows up. And what I noted is that we should go about life seeking to know Jesus more and more. Why do I say that? Because I think that's what Anna really shows us. When I meet with various people, other pastors, things like that, they often ask me, you know, what, what sets Southview apart? What makes Southview special? I usually tell them, well, lots of things make Southview special. But there is one thing that actually really stands out to me. At Southview, I have noted we never stop growing in our spiritual life. And what do I mean by that? A few weeks ago, I was talking with uh, one of our retired in the church. And what they told me is, I think I've grown more spiritually in the last 12 months than ever in my life before. That's what we're looking for. You see, there are lots of places where people reach a certain age and they, they have arrived. I'm not growing anymore. They think that they've arrived. That's not Southview. And that, I think, is not what Anna was doing. I think Anna continued to grow, and so Anna reminds us that Jesus is the answer no matter your stage of life. The text states that Anna was very old. How old? Well, 84, depending on how you translate the Greek, maybe older. She had been married for seven years, then her husband died. She continued to live until she was 84. And she lived in the temple day and night fasting. Why? Growing. She wisely invested her time in spiritual growth and was given a wonderful opportunity to see the Messiah. Sometimes I think we underplay the importance of Jesus. We talk about, you know, the Sunday school answer is always Jesus, right? In kids' ministry. The answer to every question is is usually Jesus, and we sort of mock that. But guess what? The answer to every question is actually Jesus. I think sometimes we forget that as adults. We dig into deep theological topics. You know, superlapsarianism versus sublapsarianism. You can go look those ones up. But what matters is still Jesus. And he is worth us taking the time to celebrate, to worship. Look at how Anna responds. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. I can almost picture this 84-year-old woman sees the Savior and gets so excited you can't keep her quiet. She's telling anybody and everybody who will listen about this Savior that she has just encountered, this baby. That should be, no matter our stage of life, how we respond to Jesus. Mary and Joseph, though, they also remind us They remind us that knowing Jesus changes everything, but life still follows a natural rhythm. 
What do Mary and Joseph do? They've just had this mountaintop experience. They brought Jesus to the temple. Simeon makes this wonderful proclamation about how he is the consolation of Israel, the expected one. Anna is shouting to everybody who will listen to her about how wonderful this Messiah is. And Mary and Joseph leave the baby at the temple and move in right next door so they can raise him, right? No. They go about the natural rhythms of life. Because God put them in charge of raising this boy. And it is now their job to do that in the natural rhythms of life. This is a reminder for all of you parents. I love working with your children, but you need to understand that you are responsible for their spiritual development. Pastor David and I will do our best, but ultimately it's in the natural rhythms of life that they are going to come to know Jesus. Mary and Joseph take Jesus home and begin the task of raising God's son. And what is the result of that? Jesus himself reminds us that the natural course of life is one of growth. In verse 40, we see that the child grew, became strong, and was filled with wisdom. Jesus, the Messiah, God himself, grew. God designed life in a way where the natural course of events is growth. Jesus had to grow. We, too, should be growing. Day in and day out. Have you thought about what it would look like for Jesus to have to grow? There are lots of things in childhood that are pretty awful to experience, right? Like learning to obey, learning what pain feels like, learning what sorrow feels like. Jesus experienced all of that as he grew, slowly but surely. So the question that I have for you, the action step, ask yourself, What is the next step that I'm supposed to take in my growth? How am I supposed to grow? Jesus was born to die, but he models life for us. Maybe that next step is simply the step of accepting that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that Jesus was born to die that you might live. Maybe that's step one. But maybe you've got that one, you've already done that. Maybe it's following Jesus in baptism. Maybe the next step is committing to a stage of growth, sharing the gospel with somebody else, committing to regular prayer, committing to reading your Bible regularly. What is the next step, though, that Jesus is calling on you to take? Jesus changes everything. He really does. But he demands more than just a quick recognition and move on. He demands sorrow and joy as we follow him and seek to know him more and more. Don't just take the easy parts. Sit in the hard parts because that's where growth will really occur. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you 
I thank you for sending Jesus. For sending him that we might have life. We pray that as we come to you, that we would seek to grow more and more. That we would seek to obediently follow you. Father, I thank you for the reminder from Anna that none of us have arrived, that Jesus is the answer to our questions. That no matter our stage of life, we can still be excited for Jesus. And so I pray that as we celebrate Christmas this year, that we would take the time to marvel at the Messiah to reflect on the sorrow of the reality of sin while looking forward to the joy that comes by knowing Jesus. Help us to embrace that. In Jesus' name, amen.